were waiting for the actual authority. And there it came up out of the abyss. Okay, here we are, September the 15th, uh, 2019, lecture discussion number 75. How about that on the book of Joel? I'll start by saying to you folks as well, this, pay attention to the fact that uh, Saudi Arabian oil capacity was diminished by half by the Iranian-backed uh, Yemeni army. And uh, that's going to cause fantastic amounts of uh, destruction, I believe, in the Middle East. Eventually, we hope to see Ezekiel, not hope, but we expect to see Ezekiel 38. One comment about my, my particular uh, situation here. My resting pulse now is over 100. I'm standing here with a pulse rate of 105. I used to stand here with a pulse rate of 65. And that is a result of the perforations they made in my heart. They made three. I got to see exactly how they did that the other day. I, I didn't watch the, the tape of the uh, operation because I probably would root against the patient. No, I'm kidding. But uh, I did read the summation, which fascinates me. I lost 10 milliliters of blood during that. And so uh, the scarring and all of that is why I, I have this difficulty that I have now. Hopefully it'll ebb, but uh, so far it is not. So I'm not progressing as well as I had expected or hoped, but we're doing okay. Okay is a relative term. So what did I say? September 15, 2019, lecture discussion number 75 on the book of Joel. Last week, I'll help you, it was lecture number 74, we hope. And that was the beginning of Ecclesiastes 12 and Ecclesiastes 3. I won't write it on the board, but I hope that reminds you of it in that order. In other words, I went to Ecclesiastes 12 and then I went to Ecclesiastes 3. That may have confused uh, some people, but it was uh, nonetheless intentional. That is the way I believe it should be approached. And prior to our little foray, I guess, into Ecclesiastes 12, which some might see as a diversion, Thinking that we're in the book of Joel, how do I get to the Ecclesiastes 12 and 3? But prior to that, we spent a little bit of time last week on the heart-brain communications, which I'm beginning to go further in today. And some might also view that as a diversion from Joel and its, uh, and its primary New Testament complement, which you know is the book of Revelation. My question becomes, who is this some that... Uh, constantly considers me uh, uh, un... What's the word I'm searching for? I don't know. Undisciplined. How about that? More accurate, accurately, um, uh, how many sums are there that are doing this to me? And there's quite a few. And, and why are they sums? See the progression of the inductive reasoning process. And why do they accuse me, the highly trained religious professional, of being easily distracted um, by subjects that appear to have no relation to the subject matter at hand, which, of course, again, is Joel and Revelation. And I, I think, and I'll ask you this question, do I have a reputation for chasing rabbits into tall grass and down holes that are seamless, endless, seemingly endless? And the long answer, of course, is yes, I do have that reputation, as you all know. And allow me to provide the latest example in the teaching on the book of Joel. The Hebrews 
have a timeline from creation. I hope you all know that. They have been keeping track of how many years it has been from the creation of Adam. To date, they have decided that it has been 5,780 years. There's some disagreement, but that's pretty much where we are today. So this is the Hebrew year 5,780. Apparently they have not consulted the evolutionary atheists about this. And there is controversy outside of the atheistic community, but there's controversy inside the religious community. What a shock that is, huh? And we should always expect that. And most of the disagreement centers around the time of the reign of King Josiah. Rabbinicals, the rabbinicals, um, they assign that date differently than the academics. And there are those who protest the rabbinical assigned date of the discovery of the lost manuscript of Moses by King Josiah. The rabbis propose that that would be 458 B.C. The academics disagree. And that, by the way, the four, uh, the 458 B.C. has been established in traditional Jewish chronology, and therefore that accounts for the 5780. So far, anything makes sense. Please nod your head, even though it doesn't. That's good. You did good, bovinely. There's bovinity in the room. But along comes James Usher and Bishop Usher and others, and they determined that Josiah's reforms happened at 623. Let me make sure I've got that right. 623 is correct. 623 B.C. So in other words... 165 years earlier, do the math, you can, you have phones. 165 years before what the rabbinical scholars have said. Again, okay, 47% is asleep already. It's pretty good. I'm going to catch a break here in a few minutes. And these 165 years are referred to as the omitted 165 years or the missing 165 years. The academic chronology dates the fall, therefore, of Jerusalem and the destruction of the first temple by Nebuchadnezzar at between 597 and 586. Mostly you'll see it here, see 586, but you'll go in this range as you begin to study it, which none of you will do. Because I know you. Some of you laughed because you know yourselves. The rabbinical position for the destruction of Jerusalem is 423. Now those are all before Christ. Obviously, I don't feel like I need to put that in there. So anyway, there's much discrepancy. But as a rule, if you want to think of it this way, there's either 165 to 175 years that of difference here, of omission, if you wish to consider it that way. The Jewish scholars are steadfast also to the beginning. They say that it was, again, I can't remember as, as much as I used to. It's 3761 B.C. is the year that they have for what do you think? Yes, you're right. That is the creation of Adam. The academics disagree. They say it is 3957. No time today to delve into the mathematics, the nuances of the conflict. Just for today, understand it's 3761 plus 165 minus 31 plus 62. 
you can come up and get the notation after the lecture, though the one person that might be interested. So just to add 3761 plus 165 minus 31 plus 62 to 2019. Why would I add? Come on, you know why I'm going to add 2019, right? Good. And what you get is 5976. So there's your differences. Who's right? Again, once again, the evolutionary atheisms which I call them the atheisms, should be a band name, don't you think? Yeah. You could say Carl Sagan and the atheisms. Daldus Huxley and the atheisms. Anyway, there is the debate. Now, there are those on the Internet who will know what the minus 31 refers to. That's the overlapping of the kings of Israel from 931 to 721. Don't ask. Okay. 797 to, 25, or to 556 B.C. is 241 years of overlapping kings. And so 931 to 721 is 210 years. So 241 minus 210 is 31 years. That's why the minus 31 in the original formula, if you want. Are you happy with that? I knew you. I, knew, I, I didn't think so. Don't, don't ask next time. But somebody will. They're doing it right now on the Internet. Anyway, oh, am I supposed to say hi to Aubrey and Cody? Hi, Aubrey and Cody and, and Caleb. Apparently we're starting this thing where they scream at me because... Uh, Anna and Andrew took pictures of them screaming, Hi, Grandpa. They think I'm real. It's fantastic. I should say something. Never mind. I, you know what I was going to say, don't you? I was going to ruin December 25th for them. But I didn't. Boy, that tempting. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Again, uh, Aubrey, Grandma does not like to be on TV. So that's very cool. Okay. So it may be that we are 5,986 years from Adam. As an aside, because I don't want to put a mark, even though as an aside is my way of saying, by the way, we may be 500 or 5,986 years from Adam, who died 70 years short of a millennium. Why did he die 70 years short of a millennium? Wouldn't it have been nice and clean had he died a thousand years? But he didn't. He died 70, 70 years short. Now, why do you suppose that is? How often is 70 in the Bible? So you can consider that. Well, some are going to insist not on 5976. They're going to insist on 5990. But if 5980, did I say 76? It's 86. Sorry, made a mistake. Golly, that's two demerits. 5986, if that's correct, 2019 plus 14 years is 2033. Did you get that? So in other words, we're 14 years away from 6,000 years. Raise your hand if you're happy. Never raise your hand about this ever in this church. Good for you. Fourteen years is what? 
That's two sevens. You're absolutely right. That's Leah and Rachel. What's Leah and Rachel? Seven years for Leah, seven years for Rachel. That's Ezekiel 39, 9 and Daniel 9, 25 and 26. The seven-year burning of the weaponry of the invading confederacy of Gog and Magog and the seven years of the tribulation. That's Leah and Rachel. If your name is Rachel, you would think that you would know about the Leah-Rachel mathematics. This subject is called, for those who are still awake, I keep saying that just because it causes four or five of you to lift your head like this. So it's really cool to watch some kind of chiropractic uh, uh, revenue, if I could just find a chiropractor. Uh, I'm sure there are all of them, but lots of them. I can tell them, listen, if I keep saying awake, I could snap four or five necks every Sunday. That would give you at least two customers a year. This is called the subject that I just covered right here that does not seem to have any correlation to Joel at all. Is called the seven millenniums of God. In other words, mankind has 6,000 years or six millenniums. Mankind's number is six. The first Adam and the sons and daughters are to have six millennium. The second, the last Adam, who is Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead and, and therefore the creator of Adam, will have the seventh millennium. So what does this have to do with the heart and the brain, you're asking, because I've drawn a really bad illustration of the heart somewhat. Or how about, uh, what does this have to do with 150 days of Noah and Revelation 9, 5 through 6? So, okay, let's go see. Genesis 7, maybe it has nothing to do, as the sum will say. Maybe it has something to do, as the sum won't say. 722. Through 24, all in whom whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So this is post flood, isn't it? This is during the flood. This is flood relevant passages. So he, God, destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. So the ground, not the sea, he killed everything on the ground. Now the ground, of course, is what? Made of dirt, and dirt could also be called dust. So do you suppose that's a coincidence that he didn't kill everything in the water, but he killed everything on the dust? Probably not. There are no coincidences. Let me read it again. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things and birds of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So more math. Can erase the old math, and now we'll go to the, that's right, the new math. That's a math joke. Only Rachel laughed. 
150 days. Probably a completely happenstance, arbitrary amount. Five months. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. Now, that's fantastic. So let's kind of revisit it a bit. Only Noah and those who were with Noah in the ark remained alive. Obvious question is what? Only Noah and those who were with Noah in the ark remained alive. Who are the those in that sentence? Obvious answer. The those are the Genesis 7 household of Noah. Household says so. God spared Noah and his household. What's in his household? So that would be Noah, Noah's wife, his sons and his sons' wives, and all of the animals. Genesis 7, 1 through 9. Don't have time to, re- to read it. Just, re- just again, add on Genesis 8, 1. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. Noah had and every living thing. God remembered, he remembered Noah and every living thing and... All of the animals that were with Noah in the ark. How many questions you got? You better have a lot. There's a lot of questions there. Every living thing was remembered. When God remembers, what does that mean? When I remember, everybody goes, it's a miracle. By everybody, I mean Lori. When God remembers, what does it mean? The meaning is far more. Extraordinary. It means salvation, doesn't it? When you are remembered by God, you are saved. Think of the thief. Please remember me. Okay, what do we have here? I should put it on the board, but I don't think I have time. We have the breath of the spirit of life. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. Whose breath is that? That breath should be capitalized in your Bible. Most of them are not. Only Noah and those with Noah remained alive. How many is that? Because it's not just the people. God remembered Noah. His household is there. Every living thing. And all the animals. And the ark. And 150 days. So I got three of the list on there. By adding ark. So have you decided what's the difference between every living thing and all of the animals? Just asking. It's something fun as I define fun. So you go ahead and consider that while I, while, iced, whilst, whatever that word is that I wrote, I continue along. We're going to go to Revelation 9. Now, I believe many of you will remember Revelation 9 because we covered a while back. And it is an amazing verse, amazing chapter, uh, yet to be completely solved by scholars. You will be pleased to know that Lori and I can't read anything anymore because we have to add glasses and take glasses off. I take mine off and put them on my head and I move the book around where I can perhaps find the book first and then look at the words. Lori puts two pairs of glasses on, don't you, dear? 
Would you like to show them how you do it? It's amazing. She has reading glasses, and then she has reading glasses on top of the reading glasses. It's, it's very efficient, and it's cool looking. It, it works. I mean, it's obviously a system that has been experimented with and found to be successful. So this is Revelation 9. We'll start in 5. And they were not given authority to kill them. I hope you remember who the they are, and I'll tell you in a second anyway. But to torment them for five months. How long is five months? Five months just happens to be the exact same amount of time as 150 days is the Hebrews reckon time. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. So there will not not be, if you remember the lecture from months ago or years ago, probably now, there will not be death for 150 days. No death. Torment, but no death. 150 days of torment from locust scorpion things from the abyss. And it happens this way, someone, and that someone should be capitalized, who has all the keys, Revelation 1.18, Revelation 2.7, who is that? He gives a key to the fifth angel of the seven angels that have trumpets. These are the greatest angels in the Bible. There's seven of them and they have trumpets. I so decree. The fifth trumpet angel, I was third trumpet. So I outrank this particular trumpet. Every now and then I got to play second trumpet. But I didn't do successfully enough to stay in second trumpet. The fifth trumpet angel unlocks the bottomless pit and these locust scorpion things come out on the earth. And that is what? That's right. It's Joel 2, 2 through 10. Yea, we're in the book of Joel. Don't try this at home or on the Internet. It's not that easy. And before them, it says in Joel 2, 6, and before these locust scorpion things, people writhe in pain and their faces are drained in color. So locusts are mentioned in Joel 2, 6 and Revelation 9, 5, and they torment people, but no one dies on all of the earth for five months. No one can die. Death is withdrawn. Physical death ceases 150 days. Therefore, we have the pivotal question. How are Genesis 7:24 and Revelation 9:6 connected? Because clearly they are intrinsically inseparable. They have to be the same. 150 days and 150 days. By the same, I mean they correspond. They connect. They are two halves of an entirety. And hopefully the sum... If not all of you listening today, including the vast Internet audience and Aubrey and Caleb and Cody, their parents have put them in front of the television to listen to me. Why did they do that, you want to know? Because those kids are all asleep right now, every one of them. That's what the parents were after. Don't think it was some kind of theological advantage for them. I am providing a babysitting service. Happens all over the world. Kids immediately sleep at the sound of my voice. I think I should charge for that. How much is that worth? We have the pivotal question. How are these connected? They have to be. 
And again, I'm hoping that uh, people listening today, including the vast Internet audience, have figured out that what has been seemingly incongruent, in other words, has not applied to Joel, that which appeared to possess incongruity, might just have, after all, accordance, conformity with Ecclesiastes 12 and Ecclesiastes 3. Now, maybe no one has figured that out yet. That's okay. I remain undetoured. Genesis 7.24 declares that none perish on the ark, right? That's what it says. All who are on the ark live. And a quick aside. The ark of Noah, the ark of Moses, and the ark of the covenant, the ark of the testimony, it's the same thing. I have three arks. In the ladder, inside the Ark of the Testimony, what's in there? That's correct. The uh, manuscript of Moses. Who rediscovered the manuscript of Moses and put it in the Ark? The one that rediscovered it was Josiah, 623 B.C. Remember the math? He did not do it in 458 B.C. Note that 623 minus 165 equals 558. That's 165 missing years. So the Jewish position that he, the Josiah reforms occurred in 458 don't conform to the academic position. And again, that 165 missing years. You can understand why this is important if we are at 5986, right? That's a big deal. Oh. <laughs> Aubrey is talking to you. Hi, Aubrey. She is not asleep. <laughs> they miss you and Grandma. <laughs> oh, that's very funny. They just said that to get a bigger present at Christmas. That's how it works because we have to compete now. I mean, we're a long way away. We're going to. Come up with something incredible. Just can't do Legos anymore, dear. Just can't. Okay. Anyway, the three arcs individually and collectively are a profound and prominent portrait of Jesus Christ. Primarily, we know about the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, but consider the Ark of Noah. It says in Genesis that the Ark of Noah, as almost everyone knows, I hope, in the Christian church, And I know that's not true. The Ark of Noah is covered with blood atonement. The word that is translated pitch at Genesis 6.14 is kofar or kafar. And is translated at Leviticus 17.11 as atonement or blood atonement. So the symbolism there is obvious. The blood of Christ is covering the Ark of Noah inside and out, it says. Protecting all those that are inside from what? The judgment and therefore the resulting death. So everyone, every living thing on that ark lived for 150 days. There was no death. As I might as well just start saying, this is a bad day, isn't it? Kofar or Kafar is also used with the Ark of Moses, 
What is used with the Ark of the Testimony? It is also completely covered inside and out, isn't it? What is it covered with? Gold. So gold is deity and blood atonement, and they mix together on these three arcs. Okay. We can conclude that as with the 150 days then, that uh, as with the 150 days of Revelation 9-6, my glasses are completely, totally covered with sheetrock dust. How did that happen? Okay. We have 150 days in Revelation 9-5 through 6, and nothing, no one died and could die or did die on... Also, that's the same situation as the Ark of Noah for 150 days. So we have the two times in Scripture. Both are judgment occurrences. There's 150 day periods. And death is completely and totally and absolutely suspended for those people who are in a judgment situation. So there's this relationship between humanity in the tribulation. 150 days to do what? Ecclesiastes 12. Aha. It all makes sense. The flood of Noah and the tribulation of Revelation are interlaced. And now finally we can get back to Ecclesiastes 12 and Ecclesiastes 3 because I've brought you back here. That is where the Holy Spirit inspires Solomon. And he has placed these incredible explanations on the breath of the spirit of life from Genesis 7:21 through 23. That is what Solomon is addressing. He's addressing the breath of the spirit of life of God that was breathed into the nostrils of every living thing that he remembered. And the death of animals is alongside of Solomon's ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical ecclesiastics, Ecclesiastes 12. Wow. Ecclesiastical is a tribulational reference. Ecclesiastical, Babylon. What I'm trying to say is that Solomon put Ecclesiastes 3 and Ecclesiastes 12 side by side, not in that order. And that is also Genesis 7, 21, 23, because what's in Ecclesiastes 3? It is the breath of animals and the breath of man. That is Genesis 7, and that is what Ecclesiastes 12 ultimately refers to. And as you will remember, I hope, Solomon begins his dissertation on death with remember now your creator, Ecclesiastes 12.1. And remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed. Remember that? Ha-ha! Ecclesiastes 12.6. If I have to tell you it's a joke... And it's not as funny. Thank you for pretending to laugh in the very back. Let me explain that by including, remember your creator in Ecclesiastes 12.6. I'm agreeing with those who believe Ecclesiastes 12.6 refers back to Ecclesiastes 12.1 and forward to Ecclesiastes 12.7. And that's something I'll explain here in a moment. That's a relative term. For today, just be cognizant that there's a disagreement over Ecclesiastes 12.6. We're going to read it all again so that hopefully this will make some sense to you. And Ecclesiastes 12.6 in the New King James, and I think rightfully so, says, Remember your Creator, and, and includes that as part of the translation. Now, it's in italics, and some of your Bibles will only have remember him, and many will have nothing. It'll just have or. In any event, remember your Creator is an addition 
and, uh, and that is considered by the translators as a clarification because they see it as referring back to 12.1 and 12.7. Okay, we've got to reread Ecclesiastes 12, so let's uh, start on that. I read it last week, but let's do it again for just in case somebody wasn't here, which would mean half of you. And, and there are many, many questions here which I'll never answer. I mean, there's not enough time. I've become this aged thing. And again, it should be immediately re- uh, noted that, that he says, remember now your creator. And God remembered Noah. The thief said, remember me. Go find all the remembers when they have something to do with end of life salvation. God remembered Noah and saved Noah and his household intact. And, play, and that's Genesis 8.1. So start thinking about Genesis 8.1 alongside Ecclesiastes 12.1, 12.6 and add 12.7. And of course there's Luke 23.42. That's the best example in scripture of a dying man performing Ecclesiastes 12.1. That thief on the cross is doing exactly what Solomon said to do. Did he know about Ecclesiastes 12.1? Or did he just get lucky? Is that coming through on the... Trying as hard as I can. I hope so. Okay, here we go. Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember now your creator wins now. We covered that last week in number 74. If you're watching on the internet and you don't know, there's one prior to this. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. So the creator in the days of your youth, you're to remember him now. So win is now. Before the difficult days come. Last week, those are also the evil days, described as the evil days. And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in the years now. I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened. And the clouds do not return after the rain. Why don't the clouds return? Why is the sun darkened and the moon darkened? This is a dying man talking about being in a dying condition. It's not Solomon dying. He is describing someone who is dying. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and that the, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the street and the sound of the grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low, also they are afraid of heights. They don't climb ladders, apparently. And the tears... In the way, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails, for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the street. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain. Left that on the board for you. Or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit The breath of life will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. That is a quote of 
Ecclesiastes 3.19. That's how you tie them together. Okay. <clears throat> Here we go again. Another run at this incredible chapter of this passage. It's inexorably attached to the Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3, 12 and 3. Make a note. All is vanity, dust and spirit. All breath returns to God. Solomon posed the question at chapter 3 and resolves it at Ecclesiastes 12. So when you go to Ecclesiastes 3 and you look at all those questions about the breath of animals and the breath of men, those are resolved at Ecclesiastes 12. He asks the rhetorical questions at 3 and gives you the answer at 12. At his conclusion, foremost, it is obvious that this is, that this, Ecclesiastes 12, is Solomon pleading, isn't it? It's his final plea. He is pleading with whomever reads this book to remember the one who remembers at the time of impending physical death. And again, as Luke 23, 42, 43 makes definitively clear, when Jesus Christ remembers you, you are saved. So you're trying to remember the rememberer who saves you. At your time of death. I keep going back to my father who was constantly repeating, have mercy on me, a sinner. He was doing a fantastic job of not being the religious idiot, sorry, not really, big sorry, who said he had no sin. You say you have no sin, you're identified by God himself. is not going to salvation. Oops. Pretty bad. You can't get that's not thin that's not ice at all. That's your you're drowning. You sunk. The one that is saved is the tax collector who says, Have mercy on me as sinner. Come before God humble. How dare you say you have no sin? You're telling yourself that you can stand on the altar. You cannot stand on the altar. Okay, Jesus Christ remembers you and you are saved from judgment. Your name is forever written into the Lamb's book of life. That's Revelation 13.8. Not to be confused with, the, with another book of life. The another book of life, actually, which is open preceding the judgment of those who have willfully re- rejected the extended hand of salvation from Christ Jesus. So just know there's a difference between the another book of life and the Lamb's book of life. Okay, where was I? Oh, yeah. Solomon is beseeching those who are on the brink of physical death to remember their creator. Those are almost completely worthless now. When did that happen? Today. Yikes. Why would Solomon write this if there was another means of salvation post-physical death? He's begging people to remember your rememberer before you die, before the silver cord is loosed. If there's a possibility, as the cults insist, as so many of the cults teach, that there is an ability to save somebody who is already in physical death that has rejected Christ. Well, Solomon kicks that thing a long way. 
And note that the appeal is made to the very aged. Why is he focusing on those who are at the end of their life? I'm in the hospital, as you know, many, many times. I should say this. Uh, I got to read the summation of uh, all everything that I did in the hospital from the 4th of June when this all began for me, this little travail, till uh, Friday the 13th when I had my follow-up consultation. I, it's almost 90 pages. So every trip I made to the emergency room was transcribed. It's amazing. They called me something very interesting. I can't remember the page number. To, oh, uh, no, I, I thought I wrote it down, but I didn't. It, uh, it's the emergency room transcript or account. It says, um, um, it identifies me as a 66-year-old, very pleasant white male. I wanted them to like me. <laughs> I, I did every joke I had. All the ones you have heard that you thought were funny and the ones that you didn't think were funny. I was throwing them all out there. Please like me. Hmm. I'm not doing that on purpose. I just pretended I was. Reading the summation of my surgery is fantastically interesting to me. Uh, Every detail of it. Okay, we'll try this again. Why does he focus on the very aged? And I'm in that operating room and they push me by people that are also, I'm in the pre-op, they push me by people that are waiting for surgery. And I saw, Lori and I saw, Eric as well, we were all there. There's some desperate people in there who need to have heard Ecclesiastes 12.1. If I could have screamed out, remember now your creator, I would have. Yes, sir. Good. They are on the cliff side, aren't they? They're about to fall over. You're absolutely right. But that is not why he wrote it. But that's fantastic. And perhaps we can monetize that with a, with a coffee mug somewhere. Ecclesiastes 12.1 and cliffside. But I saw a, a woman, bless her heart, that I don't know if she made it. Uh, she looked very anemic. So it's hard to know. While you consider that question, what is the silver cord? And again, much controversy here. Covered it last week. Those who insist, who accept the spinal column metaphor, the spinal cord metal metaphor, the silver cord is, they say, a symbol of the spinal column. They have to confront the description of Ecclesiastes 12.6. Because it says, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed, removed. If that's in fact the silver cord, if the spinal column is the silver cord, which so many will say, it's almost an, uh, in an overwhelming amount of commentaries. I, can't, I couldn't find one that had my view. There's a shock. Actually, I did. Matthew Henry. But i got to go back to people who've been dead through 300 years. Find somebody who says, hey, he might be right. But you have to pay attention. And there's some wonderful theologians that have the spinal column position. But you got to look at that again. Remember, your creator, before the silver cord is loose, 
The Hebrew term there carries the meaning of being removed, being loosened, being set free and traveling. There's a distance element here. And those uh, ascribing to the central nervous system or the autonomic nervous system position cannot reconcile the removing of the vertebrate tissue and the, uh, the vertebrates and the tissue of which the spinal structure consists. Obviously, your spinal column is still there when you die. So it can't be the spinal column. Sorry, not really fake sorry. Because if it's just the spinal column, then it does not fit beautifully with Ecclesiastes 12.7, which the spirit of the breath of life does. So the advocates, and I realize this, those of you who advocate for the view that I think is incorrect, suggest broken as a replacement of loose or removed. To repeat, loose fits beautifully with Ecclesiastes 12.7. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. Whereas a broken spinal column does not. A couple of quick points, quick being relative term. Ecclesiastes 12.6 is the only place in all of scripture where the term silver cord is used. This is it. No place else. Solomon, the Holy Spirit through Solomon, uses it in the context of the breath of the Spirit of God returning to him who gave it. Both at Ecclesiastes 12 and Ecclesiastes 3. The, the whole thing is about, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So, the silver cord it's loosed is clearly that, in my view. And I have read the Proverbs 10.20, silver tongue of the righteous position. The tongue is not removed. They add the silver element because the silver is attached to the tongue. They say, well, the silver cord is really the silver tongue. If that makes sense, it doesn't, but I'm trying to pretend it does. The tongue is not removed at death. It's not loosed far away at physical death. The tongue is not returned to him who gave it. I submit Ecclesiastes 12.6 is referencing the breath of the Spirit of God only. And that is all it is referring to. There's nothing else that fits in my view. Nothing else rises to the level required by the subject. Solomon is addressing the final moments before the breath of, of the Spirit of God returns to God. And, he's, and that person who's still in that breath stands because your personhood travels, your memories travel, your essence Travel with the spirit of the breath of life. When you, but you return to him. When I say you, I mean what? Yes, you. And you stand before him, before the ancient of days, while the body returns to dust. And that is why I, I accept, remember, your creator is belonging in verse 6, as appropriate to Ecclesiastes 12.6. Last Sunday, I proposed the or position. You either have or or you have... Or, or, and. Or, or, and. I tried that joke last week, but I have somebody didn't hear it. Didn't work last week either. Just, I don't know. He said, no, it was horrible. But people are not necessarily complex. You know, Soupy Sales made a lot of money. The Three Stooges made a lot of money. All of Hollywood makes a lot of money now. So clearly, simplicity sells. Huh? Comedy is very hard. And the dumber you are, the more successful you are in Hollywood. I can prove that. I see you. I raise you six dollars. Okay. 
I, pr I propose that the or position of Ecclesiastes 12.6 held up while the and position fell, which then implies the allegorical assignment, which is ancient, it's very old, of the brain and the heart. See, the golden bowl, or the golden bowl, or the pitcher shattered, or the wheel broken. Is it and or or? Some will say both. I said, what did I say I said? I took the and position. Or did I? Who remembers? Have to look. I'll, I'll clarify it. The allegorical assignment, the, the, oldest, the oldest analysis of this scripture comes from the ancient Jewish scholars. They say that the brain and the heart and the circulatory system is explained here. The breaking down of it. And that is probably best uh, demonstrated literally, uh, I mean literacy-wise, by John Gill in his commentary with respect to the golden bowl and the clay pitcher and fountain, the wheel and the well. He says that the fountain is blood, the blood supply, and the clay pitcher is the heart. And that's a common interpretation. The golden bowl is a brain in the skull. And often it is the wheel and the pitcher that is said to represent the two ventricles of the heart. Oh, my. What's this? We shall see. Henry Morris, a man that I have great respect for, he proposes that the wheel and pitcher are ventricles. And Gill and Morris are two giants of biblical exposition, so I, I defer, I'm inclined to defer to their conclusions. But then I've got to ask some questions. Why are these four things given? Silver cord, the golden bowl, the pitcher, shattered at the fountain, the wheel broken at the well? Then the dust will return to the earth and then the spirit will return to God. So what is that? Why are these four examples given? And if the silver cord is the soul, as I, pr I protest that it is, the breath of life returning to God who gave it, then what happens to the remaining three? What are they doing? And how do they conform to the silver cord? And, and the body returning to dust, because that's the point again. Everything returns at death. The body returns to God, I'm sorry, returns to dust, and the soul returns to God. I have return, return. The breath of the spirit of life ascends and the body descends. That's John 3.12, Genesis 28.12, Proverbs 34, Revelation 21.2 and 21.10. This ascension and descension. It's not an accident. Probably the best way to address this is to take on the heart and the brain and see if it fits the clay pitcher, the golden bowl, the wheel at the well. Whomever designed the heart had Solomon write Ecclesiastes 12.6. So we should be able to compare. Don't ask, by the way, just, ah, man, I got killed today. Don't ask how? Ask why he designed it this way. It's not how he designed it. We're all messed up. We keep going around saying, why did he, I'm sorry, how does this work? That's not the question. The question, why is it the way it is? So here we go for fun. I'm not very good at this. You shall see. I, my... I'm not plumb. I'm listing. Windows won't close. Okay. That is something that I'm very familiar with. I've seen thousands of them now. 
I have my own little machine and I check it constantly and I've been I've been adhesived so many times I can't count. I shaved my chest, as you know. I got to shave my back apparently now. I'm working on shaving my feet just because they're very unattractive. <laughs> this is an EKG. I say EKG because it's the Greek cardia is the K as opposed to ECG. What happens is there is a sinus node. Why do we call it sinus? Because there's a man named Sinus. Somewhere in this mix. There's a sinus node, my, and it is in the uh, right atrium. When you look at me, this is my right atrium. I'm this picture. When I look at you, your right is on my left. So you're looking at me, and therefore you're confused. This happens every Sunday. So there's a sinus node. Here's something very interesting. I'm going to uh, number these things here. One, two, three, four, five, uh, six, got to get this right, seven and eight. Number one on my little goofy diagram here that will probably sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars, let me sign it. One of one, right? There'll never be another one. Number one is the SA node. It was amazing. 1906, they discovered finally that there's a node inside the right ventricle that initiates the electrical structure, or the electrical cycle, or the cardiac cycle. So this on the EKG represents number one, the sinus uh, node that's initiating the pulse. Depolarization is number two. Now, you don't know what depolarization means yet, but you're going to have to learn because I'm going to force you down your throats until you learn it. We have something that is polarized and it becomes depolarized and it actually is a, my, uh, a heart cell, a muscle cell. We'll get into that here in a minute if I have the time. Number three is atrial contraction. Now, I know all about atrial contraction because mine is dyssynchronous or dysfunctional until it was ablated, and I've had almost 35 days of no atrial dyssynchrony or atrial fibrillation. Number four is the depolarization of the AV node or the ventricle node, which I put around in here somewhere, and there is something called the bundle of Hiss, named after a guy named Hiss. His, Hiss actually, I think is Wilhelm, so I suspect it's Hiss. So they name things after people, and you have to learn their names, and you have to find out when they died, and you have to know what their pets were, and who their kids are, and what their roof system was. You have to go get all that in order to understand. Three, did I mention three? Okay, number three is atrial contraction. Number four is the depolarization of the, atri or the ventricle node and the uh, common bundle. The common bundle is a, uh, another very electrical system that we have to understand. Then number five is the repolarization. You can hopefully you can see five. That's the repolarization of the atrial muscle. And depolarization is six. And that is the depolarization of the ventricular muscle. Whenever I went in um, to the, I had no P wave. So I did not have depolarization of the atrial muscle, which means it now was dysfunctioning completely. It did not have polarization, did not have depolarization. Again, I know this means nothing to you. It's okay. A couple of you are going, gosh, we did this in eighth grade biology. Do we have to do it here? 
yes in order to solve Ecclesiastes 12. Number seven is contraction of the ventricular muscle. And number eight is repolarization of the ventricular muscle. Now, I learned very quickly that these eight things, how many of them do you think the EKG can register out of eight? Three. The SA node that's initiating the pulse, not visible. We assume it's happening. That's what the biomedical field does. It assumes that the SA node is initiating a pulse. The P wave is visible, except for me, when it's not. Three, the atrial contraction, not visible. They say, well, it's inside the ventricular, uh, inside the depolarization of the ventricular muscle, but it's not visible. Number four, the depolarization of the Ventricular node in the common bundle, not visible. Five, repolarization of the atrial muscle, not visible. Six, the QRS, uh, the depolarization of the ventricular muscle is visible. Seven, though, not visible. Contraction of the ventricular muscle. The T wave, visible. The repolarization of the ventricular muscle. Something's going on here. And five out of the eight, no one knows what they are. I had the, the, the ANP tell me on Friday the 13th, we have no idea what causes atrial fibrillation. We have no idea. And I knew that she was right. Because I knew the EKG has no idea how it works. I'm doing this to explain to you that there's something so incredibly mathematically complex going on here that heretofore it is unknown primarily. In addition to the blood volume and the contractile strength, the heart has to maintain its cycle of relaxation and contraction. That's what it's doing. Again, my heart is not cooperating. It hasn't been lately, but prior to this, for two months, it did not cooperate. And this is done by a ridiculously, it's absurdly ridiculous, complex electrophysical uh, uh, series of events. That's where I come in. Because I have the capacity, being... Uh, a railroad guy, I can trace this electrical signal system just like I can read any schematic. It's pretty simple to me. The atrials rhythmically contract and relax as do the ventricles. And there's two principal cell types. There's myocardium cells. That's the heart muscle itself. If you have myocardia, that means that you have a weakness in your muscles in your heart. And that's a concern for me because I have premature ventricular complexes and those damage the heart if they're not if I am high ectopic burden which I was for a while I'm not now so I have two temple uh, principal types of cells I have the myocardium cells those are heart muscle again and I have neuroconductive cells in the heart that's extraordinary and I can't emphasize it enough the myocardium cells compose the structures, if you wish, of the, if you want to think of it that way, of the atrial and the ventricles. But these electrical cells, that's the SA node. That's this guy that initiates. That's an electrical device there. That's a transmitter. And, and I have receivers everywhere in this thing. I have a transmitting receiver, transceiver. 
probably evolved this transceiver, like every other transceiver I've worked on. Here they come. Okay, they're tired of me. I got three more minutes and I'll quit. So if you can hold them off, thank you, please. The electrical cells are, are the SA node, the sinuatrial, and the AV node, the atrial ventricular. And the bundle of hiss, which I, uh, I didn't draw, but I will later, that there's this electrofiber fiber structure. There's all kinds of them in there. Many I won't even mention today. I'm barely even scratching this. But that's also electrical. And the Purkinje, is it, did I say that right? Purkinje? Fibers. And the branch, the bundle branches, the Purkinje fibers are down here. So essentially I have an electrical circuit that starts up here and rotates down. And mine, of course, is being interfered with. Turned out that uh, where my, I had cryoablation, so they had to penetrate into the left atrium. And there's four. I only drew two because I couldn't fit four into my diagram. Sue me, you folks on the internet. Try it. I have, I have nothing. <laughs> what will they get? Clothes that don't fit. That's the best item I've got. But he, he essentially, if that was, if we're looking at it from this, he cryoablated circumferentially around all four of those pulmonary veins because they were creating uh, electrical interference. Competitive, intrusive signals. Those that I just read off, the atrial, the nodes, and the bundle of hiss, and the Purkinje, and the bundle branches, those are those things in the heart that initiate and conduct electrical impulses, impulses throughout the myocardium, and they're the regulators of the cardiac cycle. And these cells are said to possess something that's called automaticity. In other words, they act on their own will. This is why the heart is thought to have a logic system and a neurological component to it that is established by the Lacy's in the 1970s and has been authenticated in the 1980s. These cells, these electrical cells, uh, they act when they will. And that's what causes polarization and depolarization in the myocardium cells. And I won't get into polarization, but just know here's an example of polarization. That is a bat tree. There's no such thing as a bat tree. That would be a bunch of bats in a tree. But there aren't any. There's not a bat tree. There's batteries. Sorry for those of you who think otherwise. Okay. This is a diode. This is extremely simple. Please don't write me like I'm some kind of idiot. I know what I'm doing. That's a diode, and it is correctly polarized because this is negative, and this is positive, and this is negative, and that is positive. And your heart is made up like that, except it changes from one polarity to another polarity, every single cell in your heart. And what causes it to 
to change from one polarization to to a depolarized state and then back to a repolarized state is the sodium-potassium impulses, infusions into each and every cell. They'll start out with one polarization, for example. Oops, I'll do it this way. This is a polarized cell and it looks terrible. I got that. It's the best I can do. And then all of a sudden an infusion will come and it'll flip it from this polarization to the opposite. Now, if I flip this battery around, this diode is polarized and I'd have to repolarize the diode in order to get the current to flow. Right now, we in the railroad industry ground the positive. You folks at the General Motors who makes the locomotives and makes cars, they polarize the negative to ground. So, it's another story completely that nobody cares about. I'm just trying to point out to you, this is unbelievable. Beyond unbelievable. And we haven't even talked about how, we did last week a little bit, how it neurologically ascends into the brain and controls the brain. How the brain descends into the heart and controls the heart. Ascension, descension. How does he do it?